You are listening to the voice of Daryl Bennett and welcome to another installment of the Daryl Bennett Experience. Higher learning, where we discuss everything from government and law to business, finance, and entrepreneurship to current events and spirituality. I promise you, your life will never be the same. The intention today is for you to be a more effective storyteller. Over the next 90 minutes, I'm gonna show you some of the best storytellers in the world, how they do it. And the fact that every time you're communicating, I really want you to think about the fact that you're telling a story. You're telling a story, whether it's the politician that's seeking to sell the crowd on a vote, you know, he or she will tell stories about, instead of talking about a policy of healthcare, they talk about, you know, George who has, you know, three legs and, 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 and four fingers, you know, and, and things not going right. I'm being facetious here, but you notice they talk in stories because people connect with that. People don't as much connect to abstract numbers, facts, statistics, figures. And that's what we're coming to here when we talk about storytelling. People connect with people, characters, storylines. And so the more effective that you're able to do that, whether again, it's the politician on the stage whether it's the comedian who's talking about, you know, their cousin or their uh, sister, you notice they always tend, and sometimes it's fictionalized, they always talk about someone in their family. Why is that? I think part of it is because they want to humanize the joke. And it may not be a person in their family that they're really talking about that really, you know, is causing all these laughs, but it's the point of, I want you to draw the parallel, just like the politician is doing, the comedian is doing, just like um, the business person, the business person that's selling a company or selling the product or selling the service doesn't talk about the fact that there are these abstract numbers and uh, ideas. They talk about testimonials. Let me tell you about Sheila, who worked with me, and Sheila was pretty much bankrupt. <laughs> and we worked over three months. We got her into the career of her choice. Now Sheila's got some money in her pocket. You see the difference between that and hey, my business will help you be more successful. So I want you to think overall, and that's what the point of today is, how do I tell stories more effectively? How do I, first of all, perceive that what I want to say is a story? And I know all your attorneys. If you're in a courtroom, you know what you're talking about is a story. I mean, the law is almost the backdrop. The shadow of the law is the backdrop. You're telling the story about behavior, malfeasance, nonfeasance, something they did or didn't do, and why, and, 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 and essentially, the person that wins in the court is the person that told the better story. I mean, when you think about it, you know, you have the same set of facts, and you got two people, you know, trying, trying to tell it. Quick story, y'all will get it because y'all are attorneys. So I was taught this by my crim law professor first week at, at, at law school. And she was teaching us the difference between facts and the truth. And we're gonna do that by be telling you a story, right? Because you might wonder, well, what's the difference? Well, let's, let's discuss it. The story is Mama Broccoli has three children, provolone, mozzarella, cheddar. Mama Broccoli has to go take care of something, but she wants to make sure her children are well-fed. So Mama Broccoli loads their plates up with vegetables, hands, Provolone, cheddar, mozzarella, her three children, the plates. Says, I want you to eat everything and, you know, you'll grow to be big, strong people. So she goes in the other room, 
they take the food. What do you think they do it with it? They throw it away. What do kids sometimes do when they have something they don't want to eat? So they throw their food in the trash can. Mama Broccoli comes back. Mama Broccoli says, cheddar, provolone, mozzarella. Did you eat your vegetables? Cheddar, provolone, mozzarella spoke up in unison. Mommy, we scraped our plates clean. Now, this is the question. Did they tell the truth? Certainly as a fact, they scraped their plates clean. <laughs> they, there's, no, there's no question about that. My question for you is, did they tell the truth? Go ahead, Jenny, take it off mute. Don't be shy. I see you shaking your head. Yes, they told the truth. <laughs> you, you see the dilemma, though? I mean, I'm just kind of uh, giving you a side point with facts versus truth by telling you a story. But you see how a story, before we even get into it, a story highlights that. You see, you see what I just did? It's one thing for me to tell you an abstract concept. Have you thought of the difference between truth and facts? But here I did was tell you a story that really makes you think deeply, what side do I come out on? And where, and it really helps you to think differently, deeply about what your psyche is on things. So we're not gonna get into that. It doesn't matter whether you think it's facts or the truth. I think what our law professor at the time was trying to teach us is that there could be a difference. And that just because you're telling the truth might not mean, excuse me, just because you're saying facts might not mean you're telling the truth. But the point I want you to get out of it is the way I tell a story, because what did Provolone, Cheddar, and Mozzarella do? They told a story. It was a short story, but it was a quick story. We scrape our plates clean. So your ability to tell a story is going to, first of all, you got to recognize what resonates in their mind when they hear the story. Right? So I'm going back to, to Mama, Mama Broccoli. Her reference point isn't just what her three children are saying to her. She thinks straight, scrape her scrape your plate clean and her point of reference is all the other times she's heard it in life you got to remember that that when you're communicating it's not just about your speech and what you're saying people are extracting meaning based on their life experience based on how they've heard the words said before based on this is a good point for me to teach you here the difference between the denotation and the connotation of a word so we know that the denotation is what we see in the dictionary we can use a word and that word means one thing in a dictionary, and that's that. But the, the connotation is how people take it culturally. We did a, uh, I remember it was a class we took in law school called Obama in the 2008 election. And we actually took it during the campaign. And um, Randall Kennedy, he was the one that taught the class at the time. He wrote the book Nigger, actually. He wrote the book Nigger. And he would talk about the facts, which, by the way, talks about the history of the word and how the word has been used over global consciousness and how it's just been the most, his premises has been the most uh, disturbing word that's ever used in history. And he kind of just explains why. But what he wanted to really teach during this period is how the masters of communication knew how to use words to get their culture to understand what they were saying. So let me step back, back to storytelling. And, and, and connotation of words. We did a whole class where we talked about Obama using the okie doke. It was a while ago. 
But he made a comment to a majority black crowd. And this is when he was running for president. And he said, look, y'all got to stop. We got to stop falling for the okie doke. And of course, the question becomes, who knows what an okie doke is? And I see some people, just by a show of hands, how many people heard the word okie doke? Interesting. Okay, so you heard. Okay. So okie doke is like an American, I'm just going to say, I think it's a black American slang, which means that you fell for the trick, the carrot and the stick. And the point that Randall Kennedy was saying is when he said okie doke, he knew his crowd would know what they meant, even if the media didn't quite get it. Just like Donald Trump, when he said make America great again, the people that needed to hear it knew what they meant. You see what I mean? They knew, they knew what they meant. The ones that he was talking to. And so I'm just making the point without getting into the ethicalness or the moralness of what the communication is, the most effective communicators understand connotation. That's what I'm getting you to understand. They understand denotation. They understand how the word is going to be perceived to their audience. And this is what I would say before I move on. Remember I gave you that uh, story last week where I talked about me being at college and I was upset at Morehouse and I wanted to make everybody else mad during a student election. And I got up and spoke and all that and uh, made people mad, certainly, but I learned a lot about the power of words. Coming back to that quickly and what I learned through that, um, through really that experience, I learned about the heat or the temperature of words. I'm not going to stick on this long because I don't want y'all to think I'm weird here with this. But I don't know how much of this is a, is, a, is a me thing or how many other people can catch this, but I'm going to give it to you. And if you relate to it, you relate to it. And if not, then maybe later. I remember, I think it was Ray Charles who said he sees colors when he hears music. For me, and I don't know how much of this is just me being wired this way. When I hear a word, I feel a temperature. Like mad isn't as hot as infuriated. Angry isn't as mad as rage. Like I can, I literally can feel the temperature. I've been in, in situations where I've been called to, I'll give you a specific story rather than give specific story. Young man, 22 years old, dealing with, um, unfortunately, uh, substance abuse since he was like 15 years old. And his mother called me and was like, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do, you know? And, and she had told me this before, but this was the first time she said, come to my home, you know? So I stopped what I was doing, came to her home. When I walked in, the first thing that I noticed was I felt the negative words that had been spoken. I felt that she had been calling her child all kinds of things. Now maybe, you know, substance abuse makes you do all types of weird things, but I felt the intensity of the negative words that had been spoken just by walking in that room. So one of the things that I, that I did was I bought this sign that said love. And I said, y'all need to put this somewhere. You know, we need words. Um, you know, they've done studies on that. There was a Japanese scientist that took water in a Petri dish, regular water, all the same water, and they put labels under the Petri dish. So some of the labels had things like beautiful, spectacular, wonderful. Some of the labels had ugly, um, perverted, like negative words. And then after three weeks, they studied the molecular structure of the water. And the molecular structure of the water actually took on, check this out, I know it's deep. It took on, and you studied it, read this so you don't think I'm just making this up to sound. It took on what the word looked like. 
So when, when they studied under the microscope, the, the Petri dishes where it said beautiful, pretty, wonderful, the, the crystallized, when you look under the microscope, you could literally see the, and again, this is all public information. It looked like beautiful crystals like you would see uh, the snowflakes. But the Petri dishes where it was like ugly, nasty, things like that, the water looked crazy. I'm not talking about from the eye, but when they put it under the microscope. And the point that the scientist was trying to say is if your words will change the molecular structure of water and your body is more water than anything else, what are your words doing to your body, to your life? Your words. That's why I really, my next time I teach this, it ain't even going to be called effective communication. It's going to be called word power. It really is. We call work really because if you understood the power of your word, it would really change everything. And so that's why it's even important in um, knowing before you go in, what are you saying to yourself? You know, like a lot of times we don't even know how to pump ourselves up. All right. So, all right. Not, not to get into that. I don't need to get to the video yet. <laughs> so let me, let me just pause there. Any thoughts on what I've said? Um, any thoughts on what I've said thus far? I know I've said a lot, but any thoughts so far? Thank you for sharing that, Daryl. Um, I think this the, the story that you started off with is so interesting because it illustrates how, you know, people interpret things differently based on what they've been through. Um, that whole, you know, comparison of facts versus truth. They don't necessarily have to be the same. It just reminds me of something my grandma used to say. She said, "There's at least two two sides to every story, and then there's the truth." Um, so just you know, reminds you to think of different things. I thought I'd also share something else, just based on what we were discussing last week of you know priest instances of priests <coughs> where you could notice them. You know, I was trying really, really hard, and then I started doubting myself because I thought, "Am I being paranoid that everyone's coming in <laughs> trying to persuade?" But I, I had a slightly different experience that also touched on what we had discussed um, in some of the previous sessions about how important it is to know your audience. Um, because I was actually invited to a meeting where not many people actually knew what the, the purpose of the meeting was. Um, and the people that had called the meeting, they started off saying, okay, this is what we're going to cover. And this isn't, and then they said it's not covering you know, certain other things by extension, but they just said it only applies to X. They didn't expressly say it doesn't apply to Y, Z or whatever other situation. But it was interesting because despite them saying this applies to X, the rest of us in the meeting knew that all the other things that they were, that they chose not to say it didn't cover would come up because it was a hot topic. Um, so it took quite an interesting turn at times confrontational with some of the other attendees who clearly thought, well, you're going to be solving all these other issues, whereas the, the, those that had convened the meeting had a completely different um, approach to doing it. But I just thought it was interesting because it illustrated how, how important it is to know your audience and be prepared for the things that perhaps you don't, you prefer not to cover, but you know are pressing and are going to come up because you're going to have those contrarians. But yeah, it was thought it was interesting I'd share that in I saw it play out in practice. <laughs> Thank you for that. And we didn't get a chance. I mean, there's so much to talk about. And maybe in the, the later modules, I want to talk about dealing with the elephant in the room. Because I think that's important. Um, a lot of times we don't. And I think it's important sometimes to speak to it. And so sometimes, and I don't know that exact example, 
But sometimes when you're in a meeting, you know something wants to be covered by others, but you don't necessarily want to cover it. The way to get around that is to say, I know this is an issue, but right now we're not going to be able to talk about that. Even though it might turn into something, what I have found is when you totally ignore that there's an elephant, that's when it gets weird. We got to at least talk about the fact there is an elephant. This isn't the time to deal with it. The elephant's still going to be here. We're going to set up a follow-up meeting or this will be the time to deal with that. But you have to be responsive to people's issues. Yes. All right. Um, let's do this. I want to start with a video. Uh, I want us to watch a speech. This is really an interesting speech. And it is, it is a speech, a high school speech, a man who comes back. I don't want to say comes back. I don't know if it's his high school, but he's speaking at a high school. And I want you, because now as we're at week four, I want you to be kind of thinking, where do you see um, some of the tips that we've already talked about? Is persuasion there? Is some elements of performance and presentation? We're going to talk today about the nonverbal cues. We're going to talk about the power of emotion. We're going to talk about how to create visual through what you say, but all of that is wrapped up in storytelling. All right, so we're gonna watch this and um, then we'll, we'll go to the next thing. Just pull this up. My mom would be at all my sporting events. Let's say I was playing football, okay? My mother would be on the sidelines and if the play on the field started going one way, my mother would run along like, Mark, get him, get him. I'd be like, oh my gosh. I'd get in the huddle with the other guys, they go, Mark, is that your mother? I go, no, I never saw her before in my life. <laughs> the greatest gift my mother ever gave me, she believed in me. I have overdosed on drugs on three occasions where I should have been dead. But I believe I was kept here for a reason. You show me your friends, I will show you your future. How do I know this? I hung out with losers and I became the biggest loser of them all because I gave up everything I dreamt about as a little boy because of who I chose to surround myself with. My friends would drive me home at two, three, four in the morning. We'd be drunk and high, laughing in the car. We'd pull up in front of my house in New York. They'd go, Mark, Mark, the light's on. i go, oh man, my mother's up. See, my mom wouldn't go to bed until she knew her son was still alive. I'd walk in, she'd say, Hi, Mark. How was your night? I go, it was good, Mom. I'm just going to go to bed. She goes, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? I go, Mom, I'm tired. I'm just going to go to bed. She goes, Mark, I haven't seen you all day and all night. Can I please talk to you? I said, man, just leave me alone. You bug me. I'd slam my bedroom door on the one person who believed in me. I was on a worldwide tour when we were wrestling overseas in Japan. After my wrestling match, I went upstairs in my hotel room and I fell asleep. There was a knock at my door at three o'clock in the morning. I got out of bed and I looked through the safety window and I could see it was a Japanese promoter. So I opened the door and he said, Mark, you need to call home. There's been an emergency. I went and got on the hotel room phone. I called back to the United States and said, hey, what's going on? I said, Mark, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, just tell me what happened. All of a sudden they started crying. They go, Mark, I can't tell you. I said, just say it. I said, Mark, your mother died. I just threw the phone down. I ran out of my hotel room. I took the elevator to the lobby and when the doors opened up, I just ran out into the street 
I mean, there was no cars, there was no people. It's three o'clock in the morning. And I walked down the middle of a street in Hiroshima, Japan. And I remember looking up and just saying, Mom, I am so sorry. I flew home for her funeral and I was so nervous to walk up to her casket. So I just stood way in the back. And I kept looking from a distance. I kept thinking to myself, Mom, please wake up. Please get up. And then I finally got the nerve to walk up to her. And as I got closer, I could see my mom for the first time. I mean, she was so beautiful. She, she was dressed in white. I mean, she looked like an angel. And I just stood over and I said, Mom, you are my hero. Everything I am, everything I hope to be was because of you. You loved me so much. You gave me a life. You're the only one that ever believed in me. How did I repay her? By getting drunk, by getting high, by getting stupid, by hanging out with losers? For what? All she ever wanted to do was talk to me. I wish I could talk to you now, Mom. I wish you could see what I'm doing. Why couldn't I have been a better son? We are defined by our choices. But if you surround yourself with people involved in drugs and alcohol and pills, it's a dead end. I'm not here to preach to you. I'm here to tell you I lived that life. It leads to broken hearts, broken relationships, broken dreams, and death. For what? To get high? If you have a mother or a father, when you go home, tell them how much you love them. See, my whole life was about being rich and famous. I had to be a millionaire. I had to win the race. I had to win the race, the expense of my marriage, my family, my friends, for what? To be all alone in the world? I learned what is truly important, and that is how precious this gift of life is and our families and how quickly it can be taken away. See, I no longer live in time. I live in moments. See, it's not what's in your pocket that matters. It's what's in your heart that truly matters. Love, love is just a word until somebody comes along and gives it meaning. You, you're the meaning. Too many windows open. Trying to get to y'all. Sorry, took me a second to get to y'all. All right. Um, what did y'all think about that? Thoughts, comments. Um, Daryl, I think what I saw was it. Well, it related back to what you were saying to say that, um, look, I can almost tell that the story possibly maybe even wasn't his, but the fact that he made it so personal made him connect with his audience. And I think also looking at the crowd in the video, it's sort of high school kids, middle age school kids who are possibly struggling with drug addiction and 
because there must be a reason why they would call someone to relay a story like that to a school um, and to that group of children. So sort of he connected with them. He gave the words meaning by making it personal, uh, which is what you said. Um, so that's what I've picked up from that. What was the message in one sentence? What was he trying to get to now? I kind of want to ask you, Jenny, since you said that, what do you think his message was? If you had to distill it in one sentence. Connect. I think for me, it was connect with the people who are connecting with you. Okay. I like that. Yeah. One other person, if you have thoughts, I don't want to pressure you. Any thoughts here on this? I love this speech. I think you did a great job with that story. All right, so let me let me jump in, chime in here. The first thing is that I want you to notice is that he showed them, not tell them, write that down. The power of a great story, you show them, you don't tell them. That's really the difference between good communicators and great communicators. Good communicators will tell you this, tell you this, but show them. How do you show them? Through a powerful story. That was a powerful story. That was a powerful story. Notice the power of the story that by the time he got to the message, the story itself told the, told the message. That's a great story. The, a great story gives you, gives you the message before you have to tell people the message. 